Heavenly Father, we do come to you expectant and thankful. Expectant and thankful because you love to speak. And so we pray as we look at Psalm 27 together and some ideas and thoughts, we pray that you would cut us open, help us to see what we're really like, help us to be honest, but help us please to see the glory of the gospel afresh. We long to leave this place changed. And so be at work. Amen. So what we're doing in January, and we mentioned it last week, is this. We said last week that so often we're a bit like a drinks machine, in that you, you put the pound coin in, but it gets stuck and we need to whack it and whack it and whack it and whack it to make this truth, this idea, drop down, to hit home, to impact life. And so the pound is, is the gospel, or it's truths about God, that we can tick the box and hypothetically say, yeah, I agree with that. But then what does that look like on a Monday or a Tuesday or a Thursday, or in that situation, that context, where you panic? And so what we're doing through January is to try and make the pound coin drop a bit, to help us think through how the gospel impacts different areas of life, different situations and contexts, how it changes us and transforms us. Now, I was challenged by this hugely, um, some of you will know this, a few months ago, um, where one of our children was, was waking up every night for a month or so um, with, with bad dreams, awful dreams. Um, there was a bit of a developmental stage going on, and so a brain growing and an ability to imagine things. But then there was an overactive kind of imagination as well and a, an inability to let things go. Something watched on TV just didn't help through most of July. And so the question is, how do you help a seven-year-old who is waking up terrified every night more than once and doesn't want to be left alone? And so one of the things that we did, I think it helped, was to grab some ideas about God that he genuinely believes, about God's character, his power, his goodness, and to help him work those things through at 2 a.m. in the morning. Do you really believe that Jesus is the boss? Do you really believe that he's in charge? Do you really believe that he's good? Do you really believe that he's always with you? Has he ever let you down in the past? Now, how about trying to go back to sleep? And it wasn't as simple as that. But there were truths that he believes, and yet when the rubber hits the road in the middle of the night, how do they make a difference? How do they help with bad dreams? And it's us, isn't it? Once again, it's us. There's this, this disjoint between what we know of God's character and what we sing about on a Sunday, and yet whether that knowledge changes things at work on a Thursday, or in that conversation with your spouse, or whatever it might be. We might not wake up at 3 a.m. and be scared of the dark. Some of us might. But probably most of us won't. But as we saw last week, we might be like Martha's who manipulate things, or Dominic's who dominate things, or Olivia's who overwork, or William's who overworry. Despite believing that God is great. And so functionally, we try and change our environments in different ways which show that 
Perhaps we don't believe he's quite so great, and maybe that we are. So how does the gospel coin drop down into the rest of the week? And so you, you'll know what we're doing through January is taking this little chunk from a book called You Can Change, which I would thoroughly recommend by a guy called Tim Chester, who many of you will be aware of. I think maybe about a decade ago he did a Morden Road weekend away. Um, a helpful book, and maybe four or five pages within that, which we're sort of working through in January and trying to rub in some of these different ideas. Now, you've got your cards in front of you, or in your wallets, or not. Um, speak to Paddy. And these are the four things we saw then. God is great, he's glorious, he's good, and he's gracious. And I'm sure we think, yes, most of us will agree with that, tick the box. But then we begin to work it through. Well, God is great, so we don't have to be in control. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. And God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. And as Andrew was speaking to the children, we were with the, Galilee, with, with the disciples last week on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the mayhem of the storm. And they were not in control, but he was. And today it's glorious. God is glorious. So we don't have to fear others. Do you fear other people? It's a disease, I think, that is widespread. Here are eight possible symptoms that you might see in you or in me. Number one, a susceptibility to peer pressure. That is, you don't really like sticking out that much. You like to blend in and look like everyone else. Maybe a concern with self-esteem, our value, our worth, our identity can so easily come from unhelpful places. It might be different things for each of us. Maybe for some of us it's, it's our looks, some of us it's our income, some of us it's our, our brains or our postcode or the car we drive. Or our perceived success in a particular area that matters to you that other people might not care about. But for some reason, that issue is an issue for you. Here's a good one, not being able to say no. Always over busy, because we're always saying yes, because we never want to let people down. Here's one for Oxford, a fear of being exposed, the imposter syndrome. That sneaking suspicion that everyone knows more than you. That sneaking suspicion that one day you'll be found out and your, your blagging and your masks will be seen for what they are. <coughs> How about small lies to make us look good? You know, it's just the way that you kind of exaggerate something that happened so that you're slightly more of the hero than the kind of footnote and it becomes a little bit more about you. Social media is awful for that. Maybe it's people who make us jealous or angry or depressed or anxious or all kinds of other things. And so we care too much about the horizontal. We care too much about what they think. And so they make us jealous because they live the life that we dreamed of. They have the things that we want. They make us angry because they, they did something we didn't like. They made us feel a certain way. They make us depressed because they ignored us. They make us anxious because they might do something, because of the what-ifs. 
which links in with the comparisons. The ladder, life is a ladder. You walk into a room and you scope the joint and you try and work out where you sit on the ladder, debilitating, paralyzing comparisons. Maybe you avoid people or situations because you just feel too small, too unimportant, too low down the ladder. Or another one, fear of evangelism. A fear of speaking to your friends of Christ because you think they'll laugh at you and sideline you and ignore you. Now, they are adapted from a very helpful book on this as well called Where Where People Are Big and God Is Small. So this is something for you. And again, let me encourage you to grab a copy of that, maybe, and to work through it with a friend. To eight symptoms. And of course, as I said on the way through, social media does make this so much harder. In a superficial, airbrushed, photoshopped, half-truth world where you get to show us your highlights reel and delete all the rubbish photos and put the one up that looks okay, and we get to see your beautiful life, well, that's dangerous. Social media thrives on a culture of comparison in lots of ways. There's a video doing the rounds at the moment that some of you will have seen that shows something of the science, the addictive nature of the dopamine that social media gives and why we like the likes and why we keep checking back to see if anyone's commented or not and why haven't they liked it? Why are there so few people who have looked at my piece? Why we keep clicking back to see them keep coming? And we might get a a high for a bit, but it's not helpful in the long run. A friend um, recently spoke very honestly a while ago that they were, he and his wife were going through, um, nobody here, um, going through some hardships, some difficulties in life. And yet what they found that they would end up putting photos up on Facebook of their kids and everyone would like them. And they'd feel really happy for a bit. And then have to do it again and again. And they suddenly found themselves this short-term, shallow fix that masks the longer-term, deeper issues and needs. They realize their identity and security and worth and value and, and joy, in a sense, was coming through people liking pictures of their kids. Now, we're going to jump into the passage in a moment, but I want to do a little bit more groundwork um, In these topical series, I like to do a bit more groundwork than normal, so bear with me. We will get to the Bible, I promise. Um, A a couple of foundational things as well that I want us to begin to sort of start wrestling with um, as we think through some of this. Some of you, this will be old stuff. You've heard lots and lots of times. It's the kind of thing I bang on about quite a lot. For other people, it might be quite a new idea and new concepts. Um, So two kind of concepts and foundational things which we need to get clear on as we think about this kind of stuff. The first one comes from Proverbs 4 and verse 23. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. I think that is a key verse for daily life. All that we do, all our actions and reactions, our words and our clicks, our shouts, our responses, our priorities, in one sense, flow from the core of who we are, flow from our heart. We're not just automated robots, but our hearts are wellsprings of life. And so if everything we do springs from our hearts, then we need to guard our hearts. Maybe that's a question for home groups to be thinking through. How do we do that? So there's one thing. Guard your heart, because your heart is the wellspring of life in what you do. 
But secondly, and more on this next week, and we've spoken about it in weeks and months gone back as well, our hearts were made to worship. We are all worshippers, whether you would call yourself a Christian here this, this morning or whether you wouldn't, you're just looking in on Christian things. Everybody worships, nobody doesn't worship. And so in, in, a, in a sense, if our actions flow from our hearts... The question is, what do our hearts worship? Because what our hearts worship is where our hearts will be. That which we worship will be where our hearts end up, and therefore the actions that we take in life, the things that we do. Which is an interesting kind of concept to try and get our minds around. If you're like me, you like examples. So let me give you some examples of how that kind of thing works out. You see, talking of social media, when, if my heart is about popularity... I'm wanting people to like me or seeming impressive, then maybe I will embellish my stories a bit. Or I will only post photos that I'm incredibly happy with. And from that friend who does Photoshop, who's changed it for me. Or maybe I won't be able to stop clicking on social media. Or maybe I will be devastated if somebody unfriends me or ignores me or blanks me. Or maybe I won't be able to say no to certain people. Because my heart really is about worshipping the God of popularity, of wanting people to like me. Or if my heart runs after the God of money or stuff or status, maybe I will overwork and climb the ladder such that I get the financial rewards that bring me joy, I think, for a bit. Maybe I'll be the kind of person who, who pours over the Ikea catalogue or, or beautiful houses magazines or or who has right move on speed dial. Always thinking, where could I go next? Where's the house going to be that's going to make me happy? And they never do. Maybe my heart runs after the God of peace and quiet and rest and relaxation and leisure. Just a bit of space. Maybe I'll react very badly when that's challenged at 2 a.m. in the morning by small children having nightmares. Maybe I'll constantly be living for the weekend, living for the next holiday, the next thing. Did you see what we worship will shape what we do? What do you worship? What's your functional God? Because what we do is we turn our backs on him as the true God whom we need, who we were made for. And we turn to other things, and we think they'll promise us, they think they'll give us life, and they do for a bit, and it's all right for a bit, but it's always the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. And we're never satisfied. Behind every sin is a lie about God. But what we see in the Bible again and again and again is that God is glorious. God is glorious. It's a huge deal in Scripture. What do we mean by glory? Well, I think it's more nuanced and paradoxical than we might think initially. So what I'm going to do is try and give you a, a definition for now. And then through the talk near the end, we'll have more of a sort of colouring in to try and get a bit more of our understanding of what it is. For now, think God's glory. Think his sheer weightiness, his importance. That's the Old Testament word. Nothing is more important or weighty than he. No one deserves more honour than he. He has the ultimate gravitas. And so when the Bible says that God is glorious, it's as if this happens. 
It's as if we have some scales and we have God's glory, his weightiness on one side. And on the other, it's as if nothing else should compete or, or be anywhere near the glory of God. Whatever the circumstances, whatever the situation, whoever we're faced with, God's glory, his weightiness outweighs that context. Come to Psalm 27 with me. And we're going to have a look at how that practically works out. I'm going to put the scales down because they're quite heavy. But the scales will be back. Psalm 27. I'm going to read verses 1 to 3 for us. Page 557, if you have a Burgundy Bible. Let's spend some time sort of soaking in these first three verses. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. It's a psalm about fear and how to deal with fear. Are you someone who is fearful? Some of us are are crippled by fear. It's almost like grief. You forget about it for a while and suddenly it it looms there again. There it is, that something, that someone overshadowing our situation. Fear robs us of life. And if that's you, if you are someone who fears, then take, take great heart, my friend, because King David knows what it means to fear, to live with fear, to be frozen by fear. This psalm doesn't seek to minimise the reality of the suffering. It doesn't seek to minimise the reality of the brokenness of his world at this point. Have a look down at some of the words in the psalm um, from past verse 3 as well. You sense something of the tension and the trepidation. So verse 2, and then do you see further down in verse 6, you see he's surrounded by enemies. Or verse 3, there are armies and war spoken of. Or a little later on in verse 12, foes and false witnesses. His concerns looming large over every word. You can appreciate something of the power of what he's up against. You can feel his fear and his pain. There ought to be a darkness to the psalm. But actually in the midst of the fear, as he begins to write, he switches the light on at verse 1. He wakes up and says, look, let me show you the glory of the Lord shining afresh over my context. He, he gets out the scales, and on one side, on one side, he's got all his fears and concerns and troubles. He's got the, the army looming over him. He's got enemies surrounding him. And on the other side, it's the Lord and his glory. And it's just not, not a contest. It's not difficult. This isn't vain boasting. This isn't the the fans before the football match kind of bantering who's the best, rivaling fans, winding each other up. Commentators are clear that actually as you work your way through, the words and the language in the psalm show David in the midst of his present crisis, and we don't quite know what it is, but he is looking back on context and situations from years gone by, reflecting on the Lord's goodness to him, what he's been up against in the past. So he remembers what the Lord is like. So verse 2, they say, 
it seems to have clear echoes of David going up against Goliath, 1 Sam 17. Goliath, you remember, threatened him and roars at him. He says, when he's finished him, he would give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. Everyone looking on thinking, David's dead. Nice lad, finished too soon. But he has the Lord on his side. And so he's victorious, and so he remembers that, it seems, in verse 2. Or in verse 3, the parallel there seems to be 1 Sam 24, David pursued by Saul and his men, looked helpless, looked lost, end of the line, game over. It looks as if Saul has David in his net, and yet he's distracted by news from across the country, and David escapes. And so with his scales in his hands... He weighs that context, that situation, his current context, his current situation, armies looming over him. And on the other side, he has the Lord and his glory, and so he does not fear. The Lord wins. Now, most of us won't be pursued by enemy kings this week, or, or giants dressed in armor. So who is it that's hounding you? What is it that's hounding you? Is it the fear of disapproval from others that shapes how you feel? Is it that that longing, that craving for approval from some that shapes how you behave and what you do? Take courage, David would say to us. Take courage because the Lord is with you. And you see, his actions, the Lord's actions reveal what he's like which is, I think, why he starts off the psalm in verse 1, speaking truth to himself. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? This isn't just an, an idea or a theory or a hypothesis. He's not just whistling in the dark trying to convince himself that it will be all right, really. No, no, he's going back to his experience of God at work in his life. You pitch up with God on your side and ultimately you'll be the winner. Now, you may not have the success that you long for. You may not be top of the class. You, you may not get the first class degree that you're praying for. But actually, with the Lord on your side, his victory is much more important than those little things. And so David looks around him. He sees the clouds looming, the reality of the mess that he's going through, and he, he clings to past experiences of God. He clings to what he knows of God. And yet, if you're anything like me, the problem is this. The problem is, we get the scales. And we have the weightiness of God on one side that really ought to outweigh anything else. But we're like the people in the land who, who want a king that they can see. We want someone we can see who, whose approval we can gain. And we can get it. And we desire it. And so I have God and his opinion and his weightiness on this side and man's opinion on this side and the scale tips like that. And it really shouldn't. Because I forget verse 1, I forget what he's like and I forget verse 2 and 3, I forget what he's done. I forget who he is. I forget the, his past actions and faithfulness in my life or past action and faithfulness in history as Jesus died and was raised again. And so our question 
Should have got a lighter scales. Our question is, how do we keep a grasp of God's weighty glory in the everyday, in the mess of life, that gets rid of our fear of people? We need to let the big story of the gospel overshadow our little stories of our daily lives. So I want to try and fill in this definition of glory for us a bit. Uh, Hopefully you'll see it's not quite so simple. It's not quite perhaps even what we expect as we look at the scriptures as a whole. We'll do more on this in home groups. Um, If you're just trying us out or you're new and you're not in a home group and you would like to be, um, come and grab me or grab James, who was telling us about the British Museum, and we'd love to find home groups. So through the week, we, we work on this passage again and try and think through more carefully what this might mean for us. Um, do get into home groups. Um, let me read some verses for us. Um, I'm going to suggest you probably don't look them up unless you're super quick at finding things, but do write them down or listen in or um, be super quick at finding things. Uh, let me read them for us, trying to shape our framework of what glory might look like. Exodus 24, verse 15 to 17, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days, the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Exodus 33, and verse 19 to 32, and the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on him, I will have mercy. I will have compassion on him, I have compassion. But you cannot see my face, for no one sees me and lives. And the Lord said to Moses, There's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. John 1. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Revelation 5, verse 11, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Revelation 21, verse 23, The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. So our task is to let this big story of the Bible overshadow our little stories, to see the little part that we play in his story, and to remember the one who is more majestic, beautiful, consuming, powerful, threatening, and yet loving, other-centered, sacrificial, captivating, weighty, to let his glory impact our little lives. Again, the caveat, as was last week, is that we're not saying we don't take people's expectations seriously. We're not saying we don't care at all about what people think of us 
but rather it's that we're not enslaved by them. We don't serve them for what they can give us in return. Their approval, affection, security, status, whatever it is for you. But rather, you see, the glory of God, the fear of God, shapes how we respond to others. Rather than living life under the tyranny of spoken and unspoken expectations of of other people, or rather than living a life full of desiring approval, fearing disapproval, we know that God is weighty and glorious, powerful, majestic, loving, sacrificial, captivating, beautiful, And that is what changes us and what matters. So here we go. I thought I'd do something a bit different and um, kind of slightly open the door on me and try and help you see some of my thinking and my challenges in this whole area. Um, This is where I need hugs afterwards, you huggers. Um, I don't. It's fine, please. (laughs) Don't don't touch me. Um, (laughs) I wear different proverbial hats through the week different roles, different things that I do in life. And I think fear of others shapes all those roles, even in ministry, even with people privileged to pastor churches. So here are three different hats that I wear, three different roles. First one is as a Bible teacher. So imagine the context. I am sat somewhere, probably a cafe, writing a sermon for Sunday. And I have a real danger at that point of thinking... If I bring out that aspect, if I make that particular point, if I put it like that, then that person at Magdalen Roads will be impressed or will be happy. And in that moment, my preaching is not so much about my zeal for God's glory or being a servant of the word, but more my hope that what I say will make one of you or all of you or an agenda in this room happy with me pleased with me, that I'll be saying what people's itching ears want to hear. So there's fear of man working its way through into sermon prep. Here's another one. I'm a dad. We have four delightful children. But I can be particularly mindful of when my kids play up in public or at church. There aren't any of them in here, are there? Because I care that other people will see and look down on us for that. And frankly, I look at some of your children and they are immaculate, (laughs) beautiful, (laughs) not you. (laughs) And I think, how do they do that? How have they done that to create such a beautiful, well-behaved child? And what must they think of me and my little quirks and foibles and meltdowns that the kids have as we're in town or whatever it is? But do you see my point? That fear of man has taken over as I care what you think of me and my parenting. Here's another one, church leader hat. Now, it's interesting. This is in the Bible. So Galatians 2, verse 11 to 14. Do you remember the little um, discussion between Paul and Peter? At the start of Galatians, um, Cephas Peter, through fear of the circumcision party, has stopped eating with Gentile Christians. And until Paul corrects him, then, he's kind of forsaken his ministry to which the Lord has called him. Fear of man working its way through into um, gospel ministers in the Bible. It's striking. And so I take it as a, as a 
pastor, as a minister, and with other elders and people in leadership here at Magdalen Road, we need to ask the kind of question that says, how much is, is fear of man setting the agenda in this church? How does that compromise perhaps work out in the gospel? How have we caused people to stumble even? What does that look like? A couple of examples, a few examples. As a minister, it is very easy to, to look at other churches and other pastors and other ministers and see what they're doing. And so we want to be a church that plants churches. Um, we'll be praying for Cowley Church Community on Tuesday as part of our um, first Tuesday prayer meeting, but we hope to plant in Bicester, many of you will know, um, perhaps by the end of this year even. And the thing is, there's quite a culture of church planting at the moment. It's quite a trendy thing to do. And so the danger is wanting to plant churches for wrong motives, wanting to kind of be the kind of church that plants churches, to impress others, to wear a badge, and so essentially acting from fear of man rather than because we love the Lord, because we love local churches, because we love the lost, because we want to see thriving gospel-teaching churches springing up but we can do it for wrong reasons. Or think live nativity and all our Christmas events. Or think real life that we do once a month on a Friday. So we watch films and discuss them, invite friends. Or think Christianity Explored or, or the Real Change course. Lots of things we do as a church, we mustn't do them to impress other people. Or to wear them as badges. It says this is the kind of church we are. Which essentially means fearing others and what they think, longing for their approval or fearing their disapproval. How do we get this glory of God more into our weeks and into our lives? How do we remember that on the scales, he outweighs everything, that he matters? What does that look like? If you've got Psalm 27 still on your laps, look at verse 4 with me. And really one thought here that I'm kind of pitching up and will expect home groups to think through and pray through and discuss through the week. Or maybe chat about it over coffee afterwards. Verse 4, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. What does it mean to dwell in the house of the Lord? Because David wasn't a Levite. He couldn't live in the temple. He wasn't allowed. So he's not talking about living there. What does David mean by that? It means he wants the presence of God. He wants to be in the presence of God. He wants to know God. He wants to be with him. He wants to see his beauty afresh. Not simply to know God in a distant and far off way, but but to know him, not simply to know about him, but to know him. To know his glory and his goodness. And do you know what? With all these four G's this month, that's really the answer. doesn't mean you're not allowed, you're going to have to keep coming. You can't skive. But the reality is, to change the hypothetical knowledge of what God is like, into the relational knowledge 
Not just to know about God, but to really know him. And when God is simply an idea, or a theory, a hypothesis, then on the scales, last one, If he's simply an idea or a hypothesis or a theory, on the scales, he's not that weighty, really. He's not that glorious, actually. But if I find my joy and my life in really personally knowing him, gazing upon his beauty, relishing his presence, then other people will make me far less fearful. It's not just that God is glorious, it's that my God is glorious. Let's pray. Father, we pray for us as individuals and we pray for us as a church that you would give us both the awareness of of where we get this wrong, of, of where we're fearful, where we seek approval, where we fear disapproval, and where that shapes us. The functional things that our hearts worship through the week. So firstly, please make us aware of what we're like, but secondly, make us more aware of who you are and what you're like. We don't simply want to know about you, our glorious Lord. We want to know you. We want to be the kind of people who, who with David, in the midst of the mess, of all that's going on around him, we shall know that you are our light and our salvation. And then, whom shall we fear? That you are the stronghold of our lives. And so, of whom shall we be afraid? Impress upon us, please, who you are and the privilege of knowing you. And Father, we don't simply want to do this on a Sunday, but work it through into each and every minute of our days. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Things of life. Lord Jesus, would you please be our vision? Would you captivate our hearts afresh? Might we see your glory afresh? And would that experience transform us? In your name we pray. Amen.